Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. For those of you who follow the show, I'm sorry, it's, it's been a while. Uh, as you probably know, I had that debate with Bill McKibben and preparing for that, plus all the logistics of that, plus uh, then another debate I had in Wisconsin the week later. That, that, took a lot of, that took a lot of time. But don't worry, we're going to make up for all that time. And, and one of the things we're going to do is we're going to devote a couple of episodes um, to those debates. And one thing we'll do just to, to give you some stuff to listen to on the road is we'll include uh, both debates. And then I'll have a little commentary before and a little commentary after. And then particularly with the McKibben debate, since it was, it was a very uh, big debate, many important issues came up both content issues, but also method issues, issues of how to think about energy issues and environmental issues properly. We're going to devote a couple of shows after that. And this is, this is uh, I'm recording this part on Thanksgiving Day. This is all going to happen within the next two weeks. So you're going to go from a, a power hour poverty to a power hour abundance, hopefully not overload. Um, but I think I think you'll see that However long we were off, uh, we were spending a lot of time developing content, which will both be reflected in the debates, but also in the commentary after. And I'll, I'll bring on some of our researchers to discuss some of the issues, particularly some of the scientific issues, which I think we can give you a unique uh, perspective on. But let's just start. Um, the next couple episodes will be just the debate between me and Bill McKibben, which took place on November 5th at Duke University. Now, a debate is a self-contained thing. It's, it's not the kind of thing I want to comment on too much before you hear it, because you know, however it goes, it's, it, both of us were there, it stands, uh, it stands on its own. But that said, I just want to give one thought on, on how to listen to these things, which is Given that debates often go all over the place, and at least on my part, I, I tried to prevent this and tried to keep it focused. It's always a difficult thing when, when you're having these competing claims. Given that that's the case, I think one helpful question to ask throughout is, what is the conclusion of each person? Because ultimately, we're debating a certain proposition, and then we're taking a conclusion, a conclusion about that proposition, which had to do with the relationship between fossil fuels and the planet or whether the planet's a good place to live for human beings. So there's that kind of conclusion. And then by implication, the ultimate conclusion is what kind of action is going to be taken. And when you hear someone giving evidence, whether it's me or whether it's Bill McKibben, the question to ask or one question to ask about the evidence is, does this evidence support this conclusion? Because one common debating technique, which I, I don't think is a good technique, I think it's, it's uh, misleading, is to try to win over the audience with arguments that might even be true in some way or might have some plausibility, but in no way, shape, or form justify the conclusion and then feel, have the audience feel like, oh, this is a good guy. I guess I'll, I'll follow him. As you'll see in the debate, one of my big focuses was that both of us should be held to our conclusions, that we should justify our conclusions. And I think that's that's a good thing to think about. Now, in this in this segment, what I'm going to do is I'm going to we're going to include the first 40 minutes 
of the debate. So the first 40 minutes were uh, McKibben went for 10 minutes, I went for 10 minutes, McKibben went for 10 minutes, I went for 10 minutes. And I think that's that's a good chunk to focus on for now, and, and you can listen to the arguments on both sides. And then the next episode, we're going to go into the part of the debate that's a lot more directly back and forth. And I think there are... I think there are real, uh, really interesting differences between the parts where we're talking for long chunks of time, um, where you're making more points without being opposed, and then where we're talking for shorter chunks of time, both cross-examination, shorter blocks, five-minute blocks, and then ultimately the Q&A, where you'll see our, our views going more directly head-to-head. But in this one, it's going to be the opening statements where we try to give our, our theoretical framework, our answer to the other's theoretical framework. And yeah, I think it'll, uh, I think it'll be uh, valuable to listen to. And you know, as you go, just write down your thoughts. And of course, if you want to share them, I'm always happy to hear them. Uh, you can always email me at alex at alexepstein.com. So I'll have a couple things to say at the end of this episode, but enjoy the debate and I'll talk to you on the other side. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate your coming here to Duke University tonight to engage in a debate. Uh, Dr. McKibben, Mr. Epstein, we have asked for the two of you to debate resolved. Fossil fuel is a risk to the planet. Dr. McKibben will take the affirmative, and Mr. Epstein will take the negative. Dr. McKibben, you have 10 minutes. Many thanks to all who organized this evening and to Alex for challenging me to this debate. I'm going to speak quickly tonight. The list of risks to our Earth is long. I think it may make it easier for those of you following at home if you uh, try to write down the points in this debate. I'll number my points to make them easier to follow, and I hope Alex will do the same. I urge you to listen closely to the evidence tonight, especially the dates. This is a fast-changing field, and timely information is crucial. Point one. In the past, fossil fuel has been a boon to this planet. This is perhaps obvious, but it is worth stating. And though it's perhaps unseemly to quote oneself, I actually think I put it fairly well in 2008. Coal and oil and gas are miracles, a solid and a liquid and a gas that emerge from the ground pretty much ready to use. They lie at the heart of our modern economy. We should be grateful for the role that fossil fuel played in creating our world and equally grateful that scientists now give us ample warning of its new risks and engineers increasingly provide us with the alternatives that we need. The transition away from fossil fuel won't be simple. It will require great focus and resources if it is to be done quickly, but it is the task of our time. Point two, fossil fuel represents a risk to the oceans. Uh, as the oceans absorb carbon dioxide caused by fossil fuel burning from the atmosphere, they have grown 30% more acidic in the last 40 years. One result, according to the British Antarctic Survey in August 2012, is that marine species are having a much harder time growing skeletons and shells. On the current path, coral reefs will dwindle to insignificance by mid-century. And by the century's end, the oceans will be, as the French oceanographer Jean-Michel Gattuso summarized the most recent international symposium five weeks ago, by century's end, our oceans will be hot, sour, and breathless. Point three. Fossil fuel is a risk to the cryosphere, our frozen regions. September 2012 saw a record low for Arctic sea ice, shattering old marks. 
NASA scientist James Hansen declared it a planetary emergency, and The Economist magazine, in a remarkable cover story, called it both a grave danger and one of the greatest changes in human history. The extensive melt changes the planet's albedo, its reflectivity, speeding up warming, and it may also have dramatic effects on weather. In October last month, a study in Nature Geoscience linked Arctic melt to weather extremes in the US. And NOAA, again last month, described a physical connection between loss of sea ice and extreme weather in North America. Point four, fossil fuel is a risk, risk to hydrology, to the way that water moves around the Earth. Warm air holds more water vapor than cold, a basic physical fact which will do much to explain the 21st century as it unfolds. The atmosphere is 5% wetter than it was 40 years ago, a staggering change. This means destructive deluges are on the increase. The American Meteorological Society in August of this year said heavy rainfalls are up 20% that extra moisture superpowers our storms. As Kevin Trenberth of NOAA put it, when that moisture gets caught up in a storm, it invigorates the storm, so the storm itself changes. We get a look at the sense of the results by looking at recent huge floods from Pakistan, where 20 million were dislocated in 2010, to Metro Manila, which was submerged this summer. Munich Re, the world's largest insurance company, the part of our economy that we ask to analyze risk, reported in 2010 that the number of loss-related floods have more than tripled since 1980 and that, quote, the rise cannot be explained without global warming. Point five, fossil fuel is a risk to agriculture. Once fossil fuel increased yields, but now global warming is a killer for agriculture, as a remarkable study in Nature in 2009 demonstrated. The study from researchers at Stanford and the University of Washington found that we are increasingly taking our main grain crops out of the range where they thrive and that we can expect grain yields to fall at least 20 to 40 percent as temperatures rise this century. Real world results bear out the research. Europe's record heat wave in 2003 cut corn yields 36 percent and wheat 21 percent. This summer's heat in the US and Central Europe depleted grain stocks and caused prices to surge 40%. In October 2012, the charity Save the Children reported 24% of families in India and 27% in Nigeria were now scheduling food-free days. This planet ate more than it grew in six of the last 11 years. Point six, fossil fuel is a risk to other species. In 2006, the Nobel-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said the risk from extinctions from climate change could run as high as 70% of species. In January of this year, a new study in the proceedings of the Royal Society found that researchers may in fact have underestimated that risk. Extinction of population of frogs, butterflies, ocean corals, and polar birds to climate change have already been observed. As the National Geographic put it, no matter where they look, scientists are finding that global warming is already killing species and at a much faster rate than had originally been predicted. Point seven, fossil fuel is a risk to coastal cities. In the wake of Sandy, we may feel this more acutely. Its storm surge came on top of seas that had already risen a foot. Unless we slow global warming, that will be at least three times higher by century's end and perhaps much more. A report this morning showed that despite the best efforts of the North Carolina legislature to outlaw sea level rise, the rate here and along the eastern seaboard was actually accelerating among the fastest in the world. This obviously makes coastal storms more dangerous. J. Marshall Shepard, president of the American Meteorological Society, said last Wednesday, as sea level rises, whenever we get even a garden variety storm now, we're going to see more damage. 
New York is only 17th on the list of most vulnerable cities in this world. Calcutta, Mumbai, Dhaka, top the list. Point eight, it is a risk to forests. In Westerly et al. Science 2006 found that seven times more forested land now burned annually in the U.S. and that the fire season was two and a half months longer on average because it's hotter and drier. Point nine, it is a grave risk to public health. The DARA Group, September 2012, reports that global warming accounts for 400,000 deaths annually now and that air pollution from all fossil fuels kills 4.5 million annually. That builds on a 2009 study from the Global Humanitarian Forum finding that global warming killed 300,000 annually and that by 2030 would be the biggest humanitarian challenge the planet faces, sickening at least 310 million people. These may be underestimates. The World Bank in 2011 found that air pollution in China alone was causing 400,000 premature deaths a year. Point 10, fossil fuel is a risk to economies and development. A report commissioned by 20 of the world's poorest countries and released five weeks ago found that global warming was already wiping out 1.6% of the world's GDP, that by 2030 that number would double to 3.2%, and that in the least developed countries the toll was much higher, 11% of GDP. Earlier studies show much the same. Lord Stern in England demonstrated as early as 2006 that the damage to global GDP over the century could range as high as 20%. We can see it empirically in a study by Olkin and MIT in 2012, which found that over the last 50 years, every degree of temperature increase in a country reduced economic growth 1.3%. 11, it is a risk to national security. During the Bush administration, a secret Pentagon report found that as the planet warmed, it would lead to greater conflict and that, quote, warfare could come to define human life, unquote. The Obama Pentagon has been more open. The National Defense University conducted exercises about climate change in 2009, and subsequently a variety of military analysts, experts at the Pentagon, and intelligence agencies told the New York Times that, quote, climate-induced crises could topple governments, feed terrorist movements, and destabilize entire regions. Point 12, it is a risk to political freedom and liberty. The further we let climate change get out of hand, the more onerous the response is likely to be. Brent Rinaldi, writing in August of this year, said, climate change is a conservative's nightmare because under pressure from climate stress, even the most robust constitutional democracy may find its character threatened. Faced with more severe or frequent floods, people will become more accustomed to looking to central authorities for aid and direction. As Matt Brunig pointed out in 2011, it is a deep philosophical problem for libertarians because the consequences of climate change include, quote, damage to the property of others all over the world. Point 13, in honor of election day, fossil fuel is a risk to our democracies. Ads from this particular industry have dominated campaign spending this year, according to the New York Times in September. Fossil fuel billionaires David and Charles Koch may spend $100 million on this election. Two weeks ago, Chevron made the largest corporate donation since Citizens United to a right-wing super PAC. One result of these payoffs is that fossil fuel gets $409 billion a year globally in subsidies, six and a half times much as clean energy. I'll return with the better news in a few minutes, that we have the tools we need in order to adapt. Right now, we'll get to hear what Alex has to say. Thank you.
All right. Can you hear me in the back? Okay, so um, Bill asked me to list my points. It's going to be a shorter list. I have basically one point, which is that fossil fuels are absolutely essential to make this planet a better place to live. Fossil fuels are absolutely essential to make this planet a better place to live. Now, it's not that I don't have opinions and uh, dissenting opinions on, I think it was the 13 issues uh, that Bill raised. Um, but most debates that I see on this issue are really problematic because one person gives 13 assertions and then the other person gives 13 assertions and none of you have the evidence and we all know that things can get taken out of context. So it ultimately just boils down to which authority do you trust, who seems like the nicer guy, uh, what political party are you affiliated with, and I, I just don't think that works. But then the question is, how do we know what's right? And I think the best way, at least in my experience thinking about this issue, is to try to find statistics about the big picture. And the big picture for me is, what makes human life on this planet better? Now, Bill has asserted that this, there's this, all of these dangers, and it's overwhelming. And, and you hear one after the other after the other, and it's, um, it's daunting, and you think, okay, well, there are so many of them, it, it must be true. And the way I think about it is this. What, what question can I ask to really get clarity on this issue? And the question I would ask about everything that Bill said is, okay, if this is true, if this is true, how bad has the climate gotten? Is there any way we can really measure how bad a place the planet has become for human beings. Uh, Bill has been at this since 1989, um, since this issue has been really prominent since 1988. Since then, we've been told the planet is getting worse and worse and worse. There are all these dangers. People are dying. And so the question is, is there any way to measure that? Uh, so I would ask you, just based on what you've heard uh, from Bill and others, if you had to put a number on it, what would be your guess as to how much dan more dangerous the planet is becoming over the, you know, especially over the past couple decades as we've used massive amounts of fossil fuels? Um, and we actually happen to have a number for this. And it's a number you can corroborate easily, and it's called climate danger, conveniently enough. It measures how dangerous the climate is. And the way it does this is by tallying the number of climate-related deaths. So think about over the past couple decades, how much would you expect climate-related deaths to go up, um, you know, given that we've heard so much? Would it be 10%, 50%, 100%? I'm not going to poll people, but just think of a number in your head. So I'm going to show you something that changed the way I thought about this issue forever. So you're going to see one line, which is black, which is CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. And the other line is blue, which is climate-related deaths to the present. So what's going on? As CO2 emissions go up, climate-related deaths plummet. They don't even go up a little bit. They completely plummet. And yet we've been hearing about these apocalyptic scenarios for so long. 
So what's going on here? Well, unfortunately, I think Bill um, is getting a lot of the facts about global warming wrong, and in two major ways. One is that he's mixing two very, very different things. One is what are the known facts about global warming? What are the proven scientific facts? And then what is speculation? What is more on the frontier? What's, what's more unknown? Because when you're dealing with speculation, there are always a million different opinions. And you have to know that if, if any of you have, all, I'm sure many of you have done research, you know in every field there are different opinions. So it's not fair to just cherry pick one and say, this is certain, especially since neither of us are specialized scientists. So we have to acknowledge what's proven science and what uh, isn't. And part of the reason that the climate-related deaths have gone down is because the proven science shows that the warming to date is very non-dramatic. For example, from 1870 to 1940, where there were not many CO2 emissions, the global temperature increased by half a degree. Uh, from 1940 to the present, the temperature increased by half a degree, including essentially no warming in the last 15 years. And all of the major models, including the ones uh, Bill relies on in his Do the Math campaign, completely failed uh, to predict this. So I'll get into some of the other stuff later. I'll talk about the Arctic and the oceans and, and those things. But for now, I just want to plant in your head it's obviously not getting, there's obviously not a trend toward objective danger to human life. This isn't demonstrated at all in the data. So part of it is the climate isn't getting bad in this profound way. But the more, there's a more important thing, because you can't explain uh, the decline, and the decline, by the way, is 98% since the 20s. You can't explain such a decline uh, just by the climate. What you can explain it by is technology. Technology is really what makes the climate safer. And the big revelation I got from this graph is that really technology, technological protection from the climate matters far more than what your climate happens to be. And that's going to be a big point. And the connection with that and fossil fuels is that a, um, a technological civilization that can protect us against these things. So for example, we can drain swamps and use synthetic compounds uh, to completely eradicate malaria. Malaria is supposedly caused by global warming. Well, we used to have it when it was cooler, and we eradicated it using technologies. Um, you can, uh, with drought, we hear about drought problems. Drought-related deaths have gone down by 99.98% thanks to modern agriculture, which is by no means finished. Uh, powered by fossil fuels, including the ability to transport crops uh, from one place to another. So in California, in the old days when we had a drought, I mean, way before I was there, it could have been I died. Now, it means that my strawberries go up in price. That's how much better technology makes life. So we can't talk about climate and how much, you know, whether it's getting better or worse, whether it's dangerous or not, without reference to technology. And then the thing that underlies all of technology which is affordable, abundant energy. And fossil fuels are the leading source of affordable, abundant energy. They supply 85% of the world's energy. So they supply the energy that's lifted billions of people out of poverty in Asia. They supply the energy that makes our agricultural uh, system possible. And they are absolutely vital for the fact that we have the safest climate in history.
Now, it's important to recognize that there are two risks we're talking about in tonight's debate. One is the risks of using fossil fuels, but the other, and which is the one I think is by far the greater risk, is the risk of not using fossil fuels. This is not just an academic debate over you know, tallying risks as an end in itself. Ultimately, this is about what do we actually do? What do we actually do to the fossil fuel industry? What do we actually do to our energy prices? And it matters a lot. And, and um, Bill, as his solution in his book, Earth, said, um, I'll just make sure to quote this so I get it accurately. Um, quote, we need to cut our fossil fuel by a fa use by a factor of 20 over the next few decades. So a factor of 20. This is by far the most important source of energy in the world. Just to give you an indication, it produces 85%. Solar and wind, which Bill favors, produce a very expensive 0.3%. Solar and wind have never replaced one fossil fuel plant in all of subsidized solar and wind's history. In Germany, which uh, Bill has cited as the leading exponent of solar, which is true, Germany not only has not replaced a coal plant, they're building at least a dozen new ones because the Germans need real energy and the world needs real energy. And there are two billion people in the world, who, almost, who don't even have electricity. And what they need to have a better climate is not some sort of static climate which never existed. What they need is plentiful energy and technology. And the only way they're going to get it is with more fossil fuels. So that kid who's heating up in India in a heat wave, he needs an air conditioner, and he needs it now. And so to even talk about restricting 20% of fossil fuels is bad, to talk about 95% of the thing the whole world needs, I don't know a word other than suicide. Thank you, Mr. Epstein. Let me begin by saying I'm not actually a doctor. Uh, well, sort of. I have like a number of honorary degrees, but that's it. Um, um, I wouldn't want any inaccuracy here. Um, okay. I, I confess that I'm a little flummoxed by exactly how to proceed, um, since uh, it strikes me that at this point the the putative debate about whether or not fossil fuel represents a risk to the planet is more or less uh, over. There's been no answer at all to the long series of very powerful, not just risks, but certainties that I outlined. Uh, it's not a matter of opinion or divided evidence or something like that about whether the Arctic has melted or not. Uh, more than half of it by area and 75% by volume is now missing. Uh, it's not a matter of opinion about whether the number of floods and deluges has increased dramatically. I give you both scientific evidence and evidence from the insurance company. Uh, it's not a sort of divided sense of whether or not grain yields are going down as heat rises. I showed you case after case after case, on and on, with all the other risks that I described. And I'll return to them at the end, but let's go, since the point of a debate putatively is to have a little bit of clash, let's go to the points that Alex was making. 
Um, in fact, he offered one piece of evidence without source or date, something about uh, decline in number of deaths over the last century. You'll recall that I began by saying that in the past, fossil fuel has been a boon, and now it represents a tremendous risk. Let's try and see if we can figure out whether or not there's some correlation at this point between fossil fuel and things like longevity. Um, uh, even if there was, it would be a correlation, not a cause. But uh, uh, the, um, the um, World Health Organization, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Center for Disease Control published recently a list of the 10 reasons that, long, that uh, uh, mortality has declined in this country over the last century, and they have very little to do with fossil fuel. They have to do with vaccination, motor vehicle safety, safer workplaces, decline in deaths from coronary disease, safer and healthier foods, and healthier mothers and babies, and the fluoridation of drinking water. Uh, they go on to say, and this is recent research from Kaiser Permanente, that if we want, uh, at the moment in parts of this country, longevity as life expectancy has actually begun to reverse and go down. Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare concern, said earlier this year in May, in fact, that if we wanted to reverse that trend and become healthier, one way to do it, an important way, would be to use less fossil fuel. More biking and more walking would both be important parts of that response. Let's look at rankings around the world, and you begin to get a sense of what nonsense it is to try and correlate these things. Uh, the highest life expectancies in the world are all in countries that use half or less half as much energy or less than the United States. Japan is, uses less than half the amount of energy per person as the United States. Switzerland, Italy, Spain, Sweden, Norway, Austria, Netherlands, Belgium, Greece, Cyprus, Ireland, Finland, these are all at half our level and they all have uh, of energy use and they all have longer life expectancies. You find the same thing within the United States. The top six states in terms of life expectancy, Hawaii, Minnesota, California, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, five of them are in the bottom of per capita use. You find the same thing when, of energy use. You find the same thing when you look around the world. Go to a country, a country like India uh, that Alex described and, and look at the by province by province. Kerala in southern India, a province of 30 million people, has by far the best life expectancy in India. It has about 10 years above the Indian average, and yet they use only 60% of the Indian average of fossil fuel. You find the same kind of thing when you rank almost anything else, uh, country by country or state by state. Uh, 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 education in this country, the top 10 states are all in the bottom half of energy use. The worst are places like Mississippi, West Virginia, Louisiana, and Alabama, which are all among the top 10 energy users. The cleanest countries in the world are countries like Switzerland, uh, or 14 of the top 20 are in Europe and they use half as much energy as the United States. Uh, the U.S. has failed to keep pace. It now is 39th on that list. That statistic comes from that radical magazine, Forbes. Um, moving on, let's talk about whether or not it's, um, 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 whether or not there's some chance that we might find something else to do uh, other than burn rocks in order to keep this thing going that we call civilization. Since I've made an unrefuted case that it's going to 
destroy us if we keep doing what we're doing, that the oceans will rise, uh, 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 that the forests will burn, that all the other things I described will take place. It will come as good news to you to find out that, in fact, there is a workable alternative. Two, first of these, and I'll call it point 14, 13, I guess, since I'm trying to keep in track here, uh, 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 point 14. Increasing energy and conservation can be highly effective. As early as 2009, the Wall Street consulting firm McKinsey and Company identified ways to save 23% of American energy use by 2020 at a cost, no, not at a cost, at a savings of $1.2 trillion. The International Energy Agency in September of this year, i.e. five weeks ago, said global transport could easily be 50% more efficient by 2050. The IEA has also identified ways to reduce the planet's energy demand by a third by mid-century with more efficient buildings. As you reduce demand, the chances of meeting more of it with renewable energy improve because point 15, renewables really work. There's nothing speculative anymore about them. In fact, and again, this is why it's important to listen to dates and to evidence, there's a report this morning from the German minister, energy minister, Stephen Kohler, who works, of course, in the conservative government of Angela Merkel, that the country will easily beat even its own ambitious plans for renewable energy and generate more than half the country's power that way by 2025, and perhaps as high as two-thirds. Already this year, there have been days when more than half the power came from solar panels within its borders. Germany is the one country that's taken this seriously, the one, the one non-Scandinavian country that's taken this seriously. It's not simple what they're doing. It's requiring all kinds of innovation to deal with everything from the intermittency of renewable energy to grid integration. But as the energy minister, Mr. Kohler, said last Thursday, I think we can integrate it. It's also not free, it takes money. Energy prices have gone up enough that 800,000 Germans out of 81 million are having trouble paying their electric bills. But the good news is that renewable energy is becoming steadily cheaper. Bloomberg, September 2012, prices for solar panels have fallen 75% in the past three years. Um, right now, the thing to understand, the thing to, to, to be excited about, is that we're actually on the edge of a moment when we get to make the transition to something else. Everybody knows that 50 or 100 years from now, we're going to power our lives with the sun and the wind. That's what's coming. The question is, can we make that transition fast enough to avoid the worst of the effects that I've described? Clearly, that's our challenge, and clearly we're capable of doing it if we don't listen to the kind of voices of defeat. One of the things that kind of um, seems ironic to me about this debate is that Alex speaks for the Center for Industrial Progress, and yet he seems so, um, so sure that our engineers and scientists aren't up to the challenge of creating a new world where we power ourselves in new and profoundly interesting ways. In fact, this kind of energy is soaring every place, including in the developing world. The Chinese are now the fastest growing users of renewable energy on Earth. 
and they're increasing at a very rapid rate. The only place this has not happened in huge quantities, or the most laggard place, is the United States. And the reason for that is not technology. We're inventing most of this stuff. The reason for that is politics. I described it earlier on and went unrefuted, the iron grip that the fossil fuel industry has on our political system. That has been enough to keep us from making those transitions. And it's why we need to stand up to that industry soon, sooner rather than later, in order to make this transition possible. Um, I almost feel kind of bad that Alex didn't do anything to sort of cheer us up at all. I was hoping that there'd be some response to the litany of uh, true trouble that's coming at us, the biggest problem that the world has ever faced. Um, the only good news that you've heard tonight is that there's a good possibility that if we set our minds to it, our minds will be capable of meeting this challenge. Thank you. First of all, uh, Bill, for your records, Historical Statistics of the World Economy by Angus Madison. Date? 2008, I believe. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, two issues, broadly speaking. One, um, actually, three. One is what Bill's policy is. Two is the need for energy. And three is the need for context when we discuss very, very complex issues. Um, so I said before, Bill says in the ne next couple decades, we need to reduce fossil fuel use by 95%. And I just want to make that concrete. That means using any, whether he does it through a carbon tax or however, cap, whatever he wants, that means that using any more than 5% of the fossil fuel energy we use today should be illegal. That's the only way of making sure that that happens, uh, illegal. And I, I want to put that in the context of Germany. So I'll we'll use Germany as a running example. So if every country in the world were to use the same amount of energy as Germany, we would need three times more energy, three times more energy. Uh, now, I'm very optimistic that that can be met. But when I look at how that can be met, what I, what I look at most of all is the evidence. What has actually been proven? So if you're, say, some of you want to become venture capitalists. If you were a venture capitalist, and every time someone came to you with a study that said, oh, I can produce 50% of your energy for, for no money, or I've got a study that says this, you would go out of business. And what you look for with anything is, is a track record. So the fact that someone has a study or an idea or something else uh, doesn't prove anything. So with the case of different sources of energy, we have to look at what are the most promising sources of energy. Because it's, it's so important. I mean, even to just take, uh, take a place like Asia. If we look at, if we look at in China, what, what the difference, um, the places that use a lot of fossil fuels versus the little fossil fuels, you have like a seven-year different life expectancy between rural and urban China. And um, I don't have the quote here, but there's, uh, I remember reading a quote from a woman who had gone from rural to urban, and she talks about how when she was in rural, because it was, it was all manual labor, you know, she was just, they would lie up at night 
hungry, getting bitten by mosquitoes, and they couldn't do anything about it. Now, imagine the, the positive possibility of getting out of that, of getting a job at a factory where with machines and with energy you can be a lot more productive. You, you'd get a decent paycheck. Now, maybe not one we would want, but one that would allow them to buy their first light bulb or buy their first refrigerator. This is the story of what is actually happening in the world. This is amazing stuff. Fossil fuels are growing rapidly, and lives are getting better and better and better. And I definitely stand by my choice to focus on that one statistic, because it is a big picture statistic, and it is a statistic that deals with what is actually proven in reality. If we think about the climate system is this enormous uh, system, and then the human system is this enormous system. It's very, very hard to know what overall is going to benefit and what is going to harm it. So a big picture statistic is the best. And the fact that despite 25 years of apocalyptic uh, predictions, that life is getting better and better, that casts into doubt the case that it's going to get worse. Um, that case is entirely based on models. And most of these studies are based on models. Now, there's nothing wrong with models, but if you've ever done uh, computer modeling or even just familiar with it, modeling is very difficult. And the more complex the system, the more difficult the modeling. So if you're taking something like the climate, which is probably the most incredibly complex thing I can imagine, my assumption is that there's no way, it, a blind assumption, I've investigated it, but would be there's no way they're going to possibly model that in a meaningful way. It's just, it's so hard. And particularly the idea that, well, it's CO2, that CO2 going from 0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04% of the atmosphere. Now, there is a greenhouse effect, which is a fairly mild effect on its own, but it's the idea that they can model that and predict the climate seems very implausible. But fortunately, uh, I don't need to just assert that and say that I found a study about that, because I can show you the reality of it. And this brings me to um, Bill, one of Bill's mentors, Dr. James Hansen. And one of these things with climate predictions is they're making predictions 10, 20, 30 years out. So we need to generally look at what were, you know, what were the older predictions and how did they turn out. Now, Hansen made a prediction that pertained to what's going to happen um, if we use X amount of fossil fuels. And one is what happens if we stop in 2000. One happens if, if it was a fixed rate. One happens if it was a point. Uh, 1.5 increase a year. And what it turned out was he had these very, very dramatic, uh, dramatic uh, graphs. And you know, this is how far it was supposed to go up if we use this much fossil fuels. Well, it turned out we used this much fossil fuels, and yet the temperature went here. So this model didn't predict it. And it's nothing against Hansen. It's a very, very difficult job. Um, and this, this is true of all the other models. I mentioned they didn't uh, predict the recent complete, almost complete flattening of temperature. And so the basic fact, the fact based on, on evidence, not based on someone's future speculation, but based on evidence, is that the climate models cannot predict climate. So what we have to go by is the actual evidence about climate. And what Bill is asserting, what all these studies are asserting, is that a half a degree warming in the last 70 years, which is the same as the half a degree warming before that, which is, has to be entirely due to non-human causes, that that is somehow causing a worldwide catastrophe where we need to ban 95% of our most practical source of energy. And 
I want to point out that, and, and again, we need three times more energy for everyone to get to the level of Germany. So it's not enough to cite an energy efficiency study or talk vaguely about the potential of renewables or cite one uh, German example, which I want to talk about. You have to look at the big picture, and the big picture is Bill's policy is going to starve the world of energy. The people, the people who have been, their lives have been getting better, they're not going to be able to afford energy. Uh, the people who, say, Africans who aspire, um, you know, who aspire to a better life, they're at the margin. They need energy as cheaply as possible. And what that means is coal, um, oil, and natural gas, particularly in the developing world, coal. So those are the facts. We know that nation after nation, from China to India to Indonesia, has revolutionized and is in the process of revolutionizing its ability um, using ability to live using fossil fuels. It's a now, so it's that is that is the big picture, and it is a stark big picture. So if someone talks about banning ninety five percent of our of our most affordable source of energy, he's saying that practical energy should be practically illegal. Now, in the last couple minutes, what I want to say is just a little bit on context. Um, so Bill talked about his unrefuted things and that I had no refutation at all. Um, I have refutations for just about all of those, but you got, he's given you no real evidence except citing studies, and there are a million counter studies. You can look it up on the web if you Google anything he does. And if you Google McKibben in those topics, you'll find dozens of real scientists blasting him, and that doesn't prove anything either. What proves anything is the evidence. But what I want to draw your attention to is that unfortunately Bill is misrepresenting evidence clearly. And one is this claim of the oceans becoming acid. So in chemistry class, we have a table right here, right? A pH table. So the oceans, this claim is based on the oceans by some aggregate measurement went from an 8.2 to an 8.1. So acid is down here. Basic. So what they did is they become slightly less basic, or if you want to put it, another way they became slightly more neutral. But to call them acid, that's just for effect. That's just to scare you. That's not, that's not legitimate. Um, I'll have more about taking things out of context, but one, I'll just take Germany since energy is my, my area of expertise. Um, Germany uses all sorts of accounting tricks that make the worst uh, accounting at Enron look, look good by comparison. Basically what they do with solar and wind very quickly is because these are unreliable sources of energy, sometimes you get too little, sometimes you get too much. When you get too much, you have to pawn it off to the other grid. And that only works if the other grid has excess capacity to pawn it off. But when Germany is giving these numbers, what they do, so usually these numbers are always doubled. What they do is they, they count all of the energy they produced as energy, even though they only consumed half of it. And that's the big picture is that we need fossil fuels to live, but I just want to point out it's very easy to take stuff out of context, and unfortunately, Bill is doing us a disservice by doing it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I'm back. I hope you got some benefit out of listening to the first 40 minutes of that. Now, debates are an interesting thing compared to most forms of public speaking, because in most forms of public speaking, the speaker gets an enormous amount of control over what happens. Of course, the audience can be bored or rebellious or whatever, uh, but you get to go pretty much unopposed and try to make a case. 
unopposed. And in a debate, it's the exact opposite. There's someone else there who is trying to say that what you are saying is wrong. And also, just, just from a, a communication standpoint, it's not the easiest thing in the world to try to make a case when someone else gets to say things that, that you think are wrong for long stretches of time, and then you not only have to explain what you think is right, but also what you think is wrong. And this is not unique to me. Bill and I were both in the exact same situation. All of that is, is by way of a debate is particularly, I think, a good format to think about afterward. Okay, what would be a better way of explaining this issue? What would be an easier, um, easier way of communicating it? Because there are certain issues that come up that might not be expected. And then there's just a, a constant issue of, of what needs emphasis, what of, of all of the issue that, issues that are raised, and Bill deliberately um, raised an overwhelming uh, number of issues, I think, to, uh, to, to make the audience feel like there was nothing that could possibly challenge his position. Especially in a situation like that, what would you focus on? And we're going to devote a whole episode, maybe even two episodes, to the opening 10 minutes uh, of Bill's presentation. Because that, that's the part I feel like there's a lot of fruitful stuff to say about that. And I think, I think I only scratched the surface in this debate. Now, I talk about it a little bit more in this, the second half of the debate, what I think is wrong with that methodology. But I think it's worth examining some of those studies the facts of the studies, and then whether and how it's appropriate to invoke studies like that to an audience that doesn't know. And if it isn't appropriate, what is appropriate? Because you're, you're always dealing with an audience that's explored the issue much less. And the question is, how can you be objective in terms of presenting the evidence, but at the same time, be fair to the audience, not ask them to accept stuff on faith, not ask them to ex accept stuff on authority. As I indicated in, in the first 40 minutes, a lot of my answer is to try to look for the kind of evidence that gives you the big picture. That then serves as a compass. So if you know that, say, climate danger has gone down, and then someone is citing as evidence that climate danger has gone way up, all of these different things. Well, you don't know the details of all these specific things, but it seems suspicious given that we know in the aggregate this has gone down. So it'd be one thing if McKibben said, okay, well, it's true climate danger has gone down, but this year we reached a tipping point and I expect it to go way up. And if I'm wrong, then I, then I recant and I'm going to you know, shut down 350.org or whatever. But it's a good, these aggregates are often a good compass to, to orient us toward um, other kinds of claims. And, and this, is, this is often true in thinking where you know, there's a lot of things that you just know via common sense that you can use to orient yourself and to question different things. So even the idea of climate change, that being used as a, as a negative thing caused by human beings. Well, we know common fact that the climate changes in, in many ways, both on a, you know, on a macro global scale over long periods of time, but then even just locally, the, the, the climate as you experience it is a highly, highly uh, variable phenomenon. So if somebody gives you a bunch of evidence, so to speak, that amounts to things have changed in the world around us, well, you would expect via common sense that would be the case. Now, you, you wouldn't know whether it was accurately being represented by the person or not, 
but just just from a common sense framework, the idea that okay, something's changing, the Arctic is changing, therefore that's bad. That that common sense, I think, tells you to be suspicious of. And then finally, the other thing is the thing I mentioned, which also at the beginning, which also serves as a certain kind of compass, is what is the conclusion? So there are fifteen. If if the point is just to show there are fifteen things that are somehow in some way undesirable that might be connected to fossil fuels. Okay, but that's not the debate. I mean, the debate was was initiated because this person called for the destruction of the fossil fuel industry in, in his book uh, called for the 95% outlawing of that industry and its product. So when we listen to those kinds of claims, it's not just, is the, might there be any truth there? And it, it is his burden to give you reason to think that he's giving you the full context, which I don't think that he gave any evidence that he was giving the full context. But even, even if you're, you're agnostic on that, the question is, does this lead to this conclusion? And the more extreme the conclusion, the higher burden of proof. I think those, uh, those should be helpful issues. Both, I guess the, the three things that are related would be looking for big picture facts, particularly ones, uh, and, and that's related to the second one, which is common sense, because the idea of climate danger, if you think about it, yeah, it's common sense that we're a lot safer from the climate than we ever have been. And then the other idea of looking at the conclusion and measuring all the claims by reference to the conclusion, not, not letting the speaker simply say, not, not, not judging it on, do the, are these things, is there some truth to these things? Might this person be right about, it? So, no, that's not the issue. The issue is, has the conclusion been demonstrated? And in the opening, as well as the rest of it, I think, I mean, the, the number one thing I fault Kibben for is that he, he would not acknowledge his conclusion. And I, I repeatedly, you'll see in the rest of the debate, I did this. I should say, I think I, there are many, many things I could have explained better, and, and one always learns a lot from these debates. And I think even in the next debate I did the next week, I learned a lot from this debate. Uh, but I will say, you can call it arrogant, but I will say I did my absolute best to be, to be straight with the audience, to be sincere with the audience, uh, and to be very clear about my own conclusion. I think Bill was completely evasive about his conclusion. And even though his conclusion is embedded in the organization 350.org, which says that CO2 emissions need to get to a level which involves something around a 95% destruction of the fossil fuel industry. And I, I argued, and I would definitely still argue, that that's suicidal. And I think it's just always a helpful method to ask, what is the person after? What is the goal? What are they actually uh, arguing for? Because so many times in history, what happens is someone has a goal, but that goal doesn't do well if it's, if it's exposed to sunlight. So the person will instead focus on things that are easier to argue, such as there are problems with the thing that I dislike. Well, there are problems with everything, and it's easy to exaggerate problems, but the issue is, do those problems justify destroying the thing you dislike? You know, let alone, do they destroy your hostility toward the nuclear industry and the hydroelectric industry? And just thinking, thinking that way, thinking in terms of what is the conclusion, I think will help you go a long way. Uh, me go a long way in terms of thinking about this debate uh, before, during, and after. All right. 
that's it for this episode of Power Hour. Our next one, I already told you, will be the the rest of the debate, which I, I think is is really interesting and from my perspective was more fun because because I liked I liked being able to counter in in close proximity to what he was saying and I thought that it made it yeah, I generally feel like all things being equal, if you you know, if you have the truth on your side it's easier if, if you speak, if the other person is speaking in short increments, you're speaking in short increments, so people can really see, okay, this is, this is the person's argument on, say, um, whether there should be a carbon tax. This is the person's argument on natural resources. This is the person's argument on climate safety. This person really is facing the issue versus is dodging it. If you mention it in a two-minute block and the person keeps dodging it, it's a, you know, it's a very, very different thing. Anyway, not to prejudice, prejudice you too much, but I think that is a really interesting part of the debate. So yeah, that will be that will be the next installment of Power Hour. Then we will go to the debate at Wisconsin, which was very, very different in terms of his focused on oil, very different kind of opponent, but I also think well worth listening to. So that's it for now. I'm recording this on Thanksgiving which just always reminds me of at least two things in connection with Center for Industrial Progress. One is just very happy to be alive in, in the world we have today, whatever its problems. I don't think you can make a case that there's any other time that's better to be alive. And that's, that's because we live in a world that has been completely revolutionized by energy and technology. So it makes me proud to be associated with an organization that, that focuses on that and, and grateful to live in a country in a world that has has liberated that kind of activity. And then the second thing is always uh, all of you who support Center for Industrial Progress, uh, and in particular here, the people who support Power Hour. I started this show, wow, almost two years ago now, and it's really been one of the most satisfying things I've ever done because I, I'm just continually impressed by how much how knowledgeable the listeners to the show are and when they attribute that to the show or, or to me or to the guests I just I find that amazing and it's it's just really influenced a lot of how I think about Center for Industrial Progress I often use this show and and the many many bright people I know who say that they've learned from the show that's really been a model for other thinking I've done about what kinds of projects can we do to get this kind of impact more broadly. So I hope you, I hope you share the show with people. I hope you continue to enjoy it. But in any case, thank you for listening to it. Thank you for uh, learning from it. And have a, great, have a great holiday. It'll probably be over by the time you listen to this, but I, I hope you had a great holiday. All right, that's it for this episode. As always, you can contact me whatever you want, love mail, hate mail, anything, alex at alexepstein.com. Go visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy and read our blog at industrialprogress.net. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.